Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. Our text this evening is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. As we await the coming of our Lord, it is important that both ministers of the gospel and that you as God's people do all that can be done to serve the Lord faithfully. As we wait for the Lord to return, we must not be idle. Rather, we must be busy in doing what we can to preserve and to build ourselves up spiritually, and we must be diligent in using our lives to help others spiritually as well. This is the perspective that the Apostle Paul had on his life, and this is evident from his commitment to missionary work and from his commitment to serving the Lord's people. Thessalonian Christians, as we have seen, are also an example to us. They're receiving and welcoming of the word of God into their lives, their proclamation of that word to others, their faithfulness to the Lord despite persecution are all characteristics that ought to mark our lives as well in these last days. After this evening, we will have studied the whole of chapters 1 and 2 of Paul's first letter, and these chapters deal with what is the proper relationship between a minister and his congregation. Having said that, we must not lose sight of the overarching theme of the entire epistle of 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians, which is to provide instruction and commentary on the Lord's words that we are to watch and pray as we await his coming. I'm certain that most of us can recall those words of the Lord, those words of instruction given to his disciples that they watch and pray. And what does it mean to watch and pray in terms of practical, specific applications to everyday life? Well, what exactly are we supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to be living while we wait for the Lord's return? And 1 Thessalonians gives us the answers. And uh, chapters 1 and 2 give us part of the answer by telling us what will be the proper relationship between a minister and a congregation when both are being watchful and prayerful. We see in the first two chapters of this letter that Paul, God's minister to the Gentiles, saw his life in terms of missionary service. He viewed his time here on earth as an opportunity to build up the church of Jesus Christ by winning converts and by strengthening believers, those who already believe. Paul was continually relating everything he was doing to the future. And this is because Paul was looking forward to the day when Christ would return and would give him the reward of his labors. And what that reward amounts to in the mind of the Apostle Paul is seeing in the Lord's presence at his coming the people whom he had the privilege of leading to a knowledge of salvation in Christ. What Paul looks forward to is the reward of seeing that his labor in the Lord had not been in vain, but had borne fruit in the lives of many people. And so he longs to see concrete evidence of his life's work 
bringing glory to God. This love for people and God's glory explains why Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians. More than once in chapters 1 and 2, Paul expresses thanksgiving to God for the work of God's word and spirit in their lives. It brought great joy to Paul's heart to know that there were elect of God in Thessalonica, and their election was, as he explained, evidenced by their reception of God's word. As they heard the gospel, their lives were changed so that they, quote, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, end quote. Their lives were marked by faith, the apostle says, by labor of love, by steadfastness of hope. They were standing strong for the Lord despite persecution. They were people who were spreading the word to others. So diligently, so diligent were they in evangelism that as Paul continued his missionary travel in other areas, he continually came across people who knew the Thessalonian believers and who had heard the gospel from them. Thessalonian believers are an example themselves of how you ought to live as you wait for the Lord. Like them, you must view your lives in terms of service in the kingdom, and in particular, how you can use your lives to reach people with the gospel. In order to be effective servants, you need to be like the Thessalonians and how they received and welcomed God's word into their hearts and lives. And as the Lord's return draws nearer and as evil increases, it becomes more and more important that you guard and strengthen yourself spiritually by means of the word of God. This need is why it is important that you be under the regular preaching of the word by a minister who, like Paul, is going to preach the whole counsel of God. For your own spiritual well-being, you need a minister who's not a man-pleaser, who is not in the ministry for personal glory, a minister who is willing to make personal sacrifices out of a genuine love and concern for his flock. You need a minister like Paul who will exhort and comfort and charge everyone as a father does his own children. Meanwhile, Paul spends a good portion of chapters 1 and 2 defending his missionary message and methods and motives. And this is because of enemies who are trying to discredit him. His enemies really hated the gospel, and they figured that if they could destroy Paul's reputation, then his message would naturally fall by the wayside. And their strategy was to accuse Paul of self-centered motives in his work of ministry. So they said something to the effect that he was in ministry for what he could get, what he could get from the people, things like power and prestige and money. And as we come to the close of chapter 2 in the verses before us this evening, we find that Paul is continuing to defend his ministry. And the issue in the background here is that Paul had to prematurely leave the Thessalonian church and had not yet returned. We know from the book of Acts that Paul was forced out of Thessalonica by Jews who were envious of Paul's successes. And now apparently Paul's enemies are trying to make an issue of the fact that Paul had left his flock and had not returned. They probably were saying to the Thessalonians something along the lines of, Paul never intends to come back here. He doesn't have any real love or concern for you. After all, he was here not for your sake, but for his own benefit. And in order to counter such accusations, Paul tells the Thessalonians in verses 17 through 20 of his intense desire to see them and assures them that he has done everything in his power to return. Paul speaks of his desire to return in terms that 
make his love for the people unquestionable. In verse 17, he uses wording in the Greek that's not really captured in our English translation, referring to the beginning of verse 17, where Paul says, since we were torn away from you. Um, Another translation might be, uh, since we were bereaved of you. A more literal translation would be, since we were orphaned from you. For in the Greek, the most literal meaning is to be orphaned. But the meaning is not necessarily restricted to the perspective of the child who has lost his parents. The word could also refer generally to a father or two parents who are separated from their children. And so we take Paul to be saying that for him and his companions to be separated from the Thessalonian believers is something like parents being involuntarily separated from their children. For Paul to write like this tells us that this separation has been painful for him. And picking up on Paul's emotions here, Hendrickson in his commentary offers the translation, which you'll notice is very similar to the ESV. He says, now we brothers, having been torn away from you. Paul goes on to say that the separation has not been long, but that doesn't prevent him from already longing to see them again. When people have a close relationship, even a, a short separation is difficult. Even a week or a month seems like eternity for a father or mother to be apart from their children. And Paul is making it abundantly clear that it has been his desire to return to Thessalonica and to see the believers there. And even though they have been separated geographically, Paul says they have not been separated in heart. Paul's been thinking about them. He has been praying for them all the while. And in terms of this desire to see them, this has not been something he has just thought about, but Paul has acted on this desire. He's actually made plans. He has attempted to see them. He has attempted to return. He says that he and his companions endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see them face to face. So he endeavored to see them. Endeavored is hard to translate from the Greek into the English because the Greek really carries with it a couple of ideas, which are earnestness and haste. So combining these ideas, we understand that Paul put forth great effort right away to see them. His desire to see them was not something to put on the the back burner for another day. His attempt to see them was not half-hearted. In fact, he says in verse 18, he sought more than once to find an opportunity. When in verse 17, he says he endeavored the more eagerly to see them face to face and then adds, and with great desire, we see that he is going overboard in his attempt to show the Thessalonians how serious he is about this desire to visit them. Now that we know Paul's intense desire to see the Thessalonians, we we must ask ourselves, well, what is this all about? Why did Paul have this desire to return to Thessalonica? Well, the desire was all about his love for the people. It was a desire to strengthen them spiritually. Paul had been, remember, taken away from Thessalonica from the believers there rather suddenly and unexpectedly. Paul had been forced out of Thessalonica by unbelieving Jews. And we don't know how long Paul had been able to minister there in Thessalonica, but it doesn't seem to have been very long. Some say that it was only three weeks. Others would say it was longer than that, though probably only a few months at the most. 
And the point is that Paul must have left Thessalonica feeling like much more needed to be done in terms of building up the church there. And he was undoubtedly concerned about whether or not the faith of the converts there was grounded and growing. He was concerned about whether they had the biblical knowledge to stand against false doctrine. He was concerned about the practical matters of Christian living day by day. And when Timothy came back from a visit with what was overall a very good report, I'm sure Paul was relieved. At the same time, 1 Thessalonians reveals that there are some weaknesses in the church. I'm certain that this was not any surprise to Paul. He was right to be concerned about these new believers. And we see in Paul's desire to return to Thessalonica a good, godly pastor whose heart yearns for the well-being of his flock. We would think that Paul's desire, as godly and worthwhile as it is, would be something that God would also want. Which is why it is surprising for us, as we read at the end of verse 18, but Satan hindered us. Literally, Satan cut us off. Now, the idea of this Greek word is, is the cutting up of a road in order to make it impassable. So one translator put it this way, Satan has blocked us. And the idea is that Satan has put up a roadblock in order to hinder Paul's plans. There's no doubt that the apostle believed in the existence of Satan. Satan means adversary, and Paul knew that Satan was alive and well, that he was at work to destroy the kingdom of God. And um, Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And in terms of Paul not being able to visit Thessalonica, we don't know exactly what those roadblocks were, but likely Paul is referring to the opposition of the Jews to his missionary work. Even if Paul is thinking about some other form of hindrance, it still remains true that Satan was behind the opposition that Paul encountered from the unbelieving Jews. We must not underestimate the reality and the power and the work of Satan. John Calvin, he writes this, he says, quote, for whenever the wicked molest us, they fight under Satan's banner and are his instruments for harassing us. More especially when our endeavors are directed to the work of the Lord, it is certain that everything that hinders proceeds from Satan. And would to God that this sentiment were deeply impressed upon the minds of all pious persons, that Satan is constantly contriving by every means in what way he may hinder or obstruct the edification of the church. We would assuredly be more careful to resist him. We would take more care to maintain sound doctrine of which that enemy strives so keenly to deprive us. We would also, whenever the course of the gospel is retarded, know whence the hindrance proceeds. End quote. Calvin goes on to make another important point, and this point has to do with the fact that even when Satan does hinder the progress of the gospel, God remains sovereign. Calvin writes of the Apostle Paul, quote, he says elsewhere in Romans 1.13 that God had not permitted him. But both are true, for although Satan does his part, yet God retains supreme authority so as to open up a way for us as often as he sees good against Satan's will and in spite of his opposition, end quote. 
So do not forget that even Satan remains under the rule of divine providence. Satan entered the heart of Judas and inspired him to betray our Lord, and yet God permitted that betrayal and even ordained that betrayal for his own divine and blessed ends. The death of Jesus Christ was brought about at the hands of wicked men, inspired by the devil, and yet that act of evil was planned by God and it was used by God to accomplish the salvation of his people. And so it is that Satan was given permission by God to hinder Paul's plans to go to Thessalonica, but because this was only because this, this was in accord with God's own wise and good plan. It was good for Paul. It was good for these believers. God always works good from evil. It's another example. Satan has brought many a martyr to his death, but God used those martyrs' deaths to bless the martyr himself, who was immediately ushered into the glories of heaven, but also to further the gospel on earth more in death than in life. And so it is with all of Satan's so-called successes, though they are certainly evil, and make him worthy of condemnation, they are nevertheless overruled and used by God for his glory. And what God's sovereignty means for us in our everyday lives is that our plans do not always work out. And this can happen even when our plans, even when they arise out of godly motives, even when our plans just seem like they would have to be in accordance with God's will. Sometimes it is God's will to allow Satan to hinder what you are doing. And what is your response going to be when that happens? Are you going to complain and murmur against God? Are you going to to doubt God's power and his sovereignty? When your plans don't work out, the godly response is, is to submit to God. And sometimes submission means waiting for his timing. Perhaps it is his will to grant your desire, but for some reason known only to him, it will be better for him to grant it to you later. Sometimes submission means letting your plan go and trusting that God has a better one. Will you give your life to God in such a way that you can actually be comfortable with whatever he does? Have you come to the point where you have said to God, Lord, your will be done. Whatever your will may be, I will conform mine to yours. Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. If you want to dash all of my plans, Lord, that is fine. I just want to be used by you. I want you to direct me. Now, Paul did eventually return to visit the Thessalonian believers. And this visit occurred on his third missionary journey as he revisited all of the churches in Macedonia. And so in the end, Paul's desire was fulfilled. God simply saw fit to bring Paul to Thessalonica much later than Paul probably would have preferred. But even so, what I see in Paul's words here in verses 19 through 20 is a trust in God's sovereign power, despite the fact that at the time uh, that he wrote these words, he had no idea what the future would hold. Whether he would be able to, to be there or not, he was certain that the work of God would not fail. Paul did not think so highly of himself as to imagine that his presence was absolutely necessary in Thessalonica. He wasn't desperate to return to Thessalonica as though without him, the church was just going to disintegrate. He certainly felt a desire to return because it was his calling to serve the Lord's people as a pastor and minister. He felt that he could be used by God to help the people there. 
and not being able to directly minister to them, he at least tells them of his desire for them that at the coming of the Lord they will be found faithful. Notice verses 19 and 20, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. These verses are meant to encourage the Christians in Thessalonica to remain steadfast, but these verses also express Paul's confidence that he will one day see them being received and blessed on the day of the Lord's coming. Notice how in verses 19 and 20, Paul is confident about their spiritual state. He's already expressed to them that he knows that they are the elect. And now as he thinks about them, he tells them that his future happiness is connected to them. For Paul, part of his hope and joy is tied up with these believers. As he thinks about the future, the Lord's return, and how on that day believers will receive rewards of grace, part of Paul's hope and joy is to see his converts there, themselves sharing in the joy of salvation in Christ. And this hope is not just a wish, but it's a hope grounded in the sure promise of God. It's a hope grounded in the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he suffered once and for all for sin, He took upon himself the full penalty of the sins of all of his elect. And by his death and resurrection and perfect obedience, he earned a people. He he bought a people to be his own, earning for them the right to eternal life. And he also earned the right to pour out the Holy Spirit upon you and upon all of his people. And on the basis of Christ's cross, he does a mighty work within us, destroying the old man of sin so that in our lives there is this beginning of obedience. And this obedience that is worked in us by grace will be rewarded by Christ. In other words, at his return, Christ is going to reward his own work in us. And from what Paul says in chapters 1 and 2, he knew that this work of grace had been begun in the lives of the Thessalonians. More than once in these chapters, he thanks God for the work that has done in their lives and Paul had confidence about the future for these Thessalonians because what God begins he completes and as Paul thinks about these believers and the future he uses a figure that actually comes from the Greek games this this, uh, crown of rejoicing or boasting uh, that he talks about is actually the wreath that an athlete would wear at the victor's podium as he gloried in his victory. And so a better translation than crown of boasting would be something like wreath of glory or glory wreath. By using this figure, we see that Paul is already thinking about the victory that he will enjoy at the Lord's coming. And what victory is this? Well, the victory of the gospel in the lives of those to whom he ministered may sound a bit odd, but Paul's glory wreath on the last day will be the people of Thessalonica, the glory of which Paul speaks in verse 19 in connection with this wreath, as well as the glory of verse 20. This is not Paul glorying in himself as though Paul is taking credit for the salvation of sinners, but the glory that Paul is talking about is the glory of God at work in people's lives. Paul considered it to be a great personal victory and glory to have the privilege of being used by God in his glorious work of saving sinners. 
to be used by God in a way that brings glory to God through the conversion of sinners. That was Paul's glory. In closing and by way of summary, we see that even though Paul was hindered by Satan, Paul did not imagine for a second that Satan was going to triumph over the cause of God. Satan tries to block all attempts to spread the gospel, but he can only do what God allows him to do. And yet, having said that, the question is often raised, well, why doesn't God just destroy Satan? Why, why would God sometimes allow Satan to put up roadblocks to the work of the gospel? And even though we cannot always know for certain why, I think we can understand something of how God is glorified through Satan. For when Satan does what he can do to destroy God's kingdom, and over against him, God protects his church, and God preserves his people, God's power is exalted. Satan is the backdrop then over against which God can reveal his power and his wisdom and his righteousness and his love. Without Satan, you would not have as great of an appreciation for Jesus as Savior. God's sovereignty will be exalted when despite the attacks of Satan, Christ returns and saves every one of his elect. Do you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? And do you have the faith to believe that he is king over all creation, including Satan? Do you, like the Apostle Paul, long for the reward of seeing people in heaven to whom you have had the privilege of ministering? Do you imagine people being there upon which you have had a positive influence? Maybe you've led them to Christ. Maybe you gave them an encouraging word that enabled them to persevere in their faith. God grant each one of us the balanced perspective like Paul had where we work to help others spiritually while all the while knowing that ultimately the salvation of sinners is in God's hands. We only do our part. We leave the rest to God. And it's that attitude, it's that perspective that will enable you to be at peace when your plans fail. I'm thankful that ultimately salvation doesn't depend upon me. It doesn't depend upon man. It doesn't depend upon any of us. What gives us hope for ourselves and other believers is to know that God will take care of his own, both now and for eternity. And this fact is why we know with confidence that one day the Lord will return and not one of Christ's sheep will be lost. Our sovereign God will make certain of that. Are you trusting Christ for your righteousness, for your standing on that day? Is he your only hope for the future? May it be so for everyone here. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, We thank you for the heart of the Apostle Paul with this great love that really reflects the love of our Savior as he loves the people, the believers there of Thessalonica and longs to see them, is speaking out against those who would destroy his reputation. Father, we also see in the words of the Apostle that there is a great spiritual battle going on and that Satan is at work and that you do allow him at times to even hinder that work, at least in an external way. Lord, we pray that you would give us hope and encouragement from these words, that we might recognize that you will have the victory, 
that there is a day when the Lord is going to return, and it's going to be a glorious day as we see the work that you have done in the hearts of your elect. Lord, we pray that we might be a part of that glorious day, that it will be evident that we were used by you, that we had a profound influence upon people's lives that glorify you and glorify Christ. So may we be used by you, and may we, Lord, be willing to do that work even as it is sometimes hindered, recognizing that that's part of our calling to to work and to leave the results to you. So Lord, guide us, we pray, encourage us, and uh, we pray that you would give us a greater understanding of what it is to watch and pray as uh, we await your coming. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.